morning. This is Red Sea Roundup, and I am your host today, Pam Marvin. This beautiful February 21st morning. I'd like us to start with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, breathe in me, O Holy Spirit, that my thoughts may all be holy. Act in me, O Holy Spirit, that my work, too, may be holy. Draw my heart, O Holy Spirit, that I love but what is holy. Strengthen me, O Holy Spirit, to defend all that is holy. Guard me then, O Holy Spirit, that I always may be holy. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. This is, again, Red Sea Roundup on a Tuesday morning. Beautiful Tuesday. So thankful for this gorgeous weather. Uh, there's there's a lot going on, but gosh, I want to start um, by asking Dennis a few of the things that are happening in, uh, in and around the station. Well, there are ghosts in the machine because the recording just stopped, so I uh, started it up again. So <laughs> I caught it. Yeah, take that, devil. Oh, well, let me tell you, all kinds of things are happening with our uh, recent round of thunderstorms that we had uh, that came through both stations and in Waco and here. Wow. And uh, our satellite dishes held up, thanks be to God, but not without a lot of uh, alarms in the middle of the night from the radio stations and, and the kids as well. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. Yeah, it was it's interesting. So, um, John Martinoni always, as uh, he likes to say, he... Uh, really is bothered by Catholic radio, but he loves Catholic radio, but he also hates it because it's the first station to go down during a thunderstorm. <laughs> and, the, you know, everything is always tested with those that run Catholic radio. And so, yeah, we've been receiving some tests, but thanks be to God. And, and part of that I think is due because Waco is now uh, the Waco station, KYAR 98.3 FM is starting their 33 day preparation for consecration to Jesus through Mary for the station in Waco. So we just started yesterday and it will end in the culmination of the consecration day on March 25th, which will also be a blessing of the tower site. So That's stay awesome. tuned in Waco for that. And uh, with that starting of the consecration comes some uh, rumblings and grumblings of the devil with oh, thunderstorms no and, and tests and trials. And so, well, and bring here, it on right here in the Bryan college station area, there's going to be a group over at St. Thomas Aquinas that, will be beginning today as well for um, the consecration to Jesus through Mary. And it will be ending with the extraordinary order, the extraordinary form of the Mass mm-hmm. on the Feast of the Annunciation. Yeah, the 25th. Yeah, and it's going to be awesome. As a matter of fact, Dennis, next month in March, I will be speaking to Father Albert, for those of us that are not really familiar with that, because here I am a convert uh, so he'll be telling us all about that. I'm really excited to learn more about the extraordinary form. That's a wonderful form of the mass. And um, I hope that you have a lot of attendance there because it's a great ex, uh, looking exposition of, mm. of what how things used to be. Um, well, you our, know what? our children <laughs> kind of scratch their heads and go, yeah. I've never seen this before. Well, what I love about it is, you know, our church is so very, very rich in history. So this is our history. Um, this is... 
such a rich in history. As a matter of fact, I just may get my mother-in-law back into mass because she's a, a pre-Vatican II person. Oh, wow. And I think she would really enjoy this. So y'all pray that I can get her there. That would be very nice. Be very cool? nice. So but yeah, I, stay tuned for great things coming in Waco here as well. And the Brian Call Station area. Go ahead. Oh, no. I'm just so excited. Dennis was just telling me it was announced this last Saturday all about what the radio station's doing for our benefit this year. Yeah, Very we have. Very thrilled. We actually have two benefits coming up. We have one benefit dinner in the Waco area. So all you KYAR listeners, stay tuned and, and listen for a spots. But we are now accepting table reservations and individual ticket reservations for our first annual Red Sea Catholic Radio Benefit Dinner on April 21st. It's a Friday night, and uh, we are glad to accept as our presenters, Trey and Stephanie Cashin, our Woo-hoo! hosts for the Mystery of Parenthood. And they are going to be speaking on the Holy Spirit in the domestic church. Mm. And we are all a domestic church, no matter what our family looks like, whether we're a single young or old single adult, where we have a slew of kids, or if we have uh, a mixed family, divided family. We all have a domestic church that we so first true. need to attend to. So that's what Red Sea stands for, is Religious Education for the Domestic Church. So all of you in Waco, sign up now. Go to our website, redsearadio.org. You can go to forward, spla- forward slash benefit, or if you click on Trey and Stephanie's face as it pops up, you can register for the benefit now. And so we love to sell out our tables and tickets there. It will be... On the 21st, starting at 6.30, the doors open at Sacred Heart Catholic Church in Waco. Sacred Heart. That yeah. That's awesome. And the other benefit we announced on Saturday is going to be our Brazos Valley here, uh, our Red Sea Catholic Radio Benefit Dinner for KEDC. And we are very happy to accept the, the dynamic deacon, Harold Burke Sivers, mm. to come in and speak on a wonderful topic that we will still choose. But it's October 19th. Thursday night Mm -hmm. here at St. Thomas Aquinas and College Station. So he did a marvelous job at the uh, men's conference in Austin this past weekend. Uh, And we actually were able to record and interview him on the air for our live broadcast there. Oh, wow. So was it just you by yourself? or No, 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 no. I was uh, the nerd behind the controls. Thank God they didn't let me on the mic much, which is good. (laughs) It's always a good thing. And so uh, Trey, not sorry, uh, backing up, Stephanie, Lee, our new station director in the Waco area, and our station director and general manager, Thaddeus Romanski, did the interviews for Robert Rogers and uh, all the, the, the folks that were there, um, some men that were volunteers, men that were in attendance, Deacon Harold Burke Sivers. So it was, it was an incredible experience. Gus Lloyd from the morning show on Sirius Satellite Radio, the Catholic Channel, was there, and he got to be interviewed. And... We just had a great, great one-hour so, interview. So were you able to participate in the conference itself, Dennis? Or, I, mean, did you I was not because talks? I was doing setup for our table and for our electronics. Okay. Uh, I know that Stephanie and Thaddeus both went to the Robert Rogers talk. Okay. And uh, we might bring him forward on a um, Red Sea Roundup in the future because he's got quite an inspirational story. Let's just leave really? it at that. Okay. Because yeah. I was going to say- Very tragic, there... yet also very mm-hmm. inspirational. So- um, yeah, there's been a lot of tragedy lately, for there sure. Has been. Our, there yeah, has been. There has been. so sorry. Lots of tragedies, but uh, with tragedies comes the hope of resurrection and, and all the great things that come with our faith. So, exactly. you know, this morning on Morning Air, they were talking about the difference between happiness and joy in even times where we're not feeling it, when we're not happy or we're dry or we're, you know, we're just uh, not feeling our faith. We 
continue forward with the joy of knowing what Isn't we know to true? be true, rather we, whether we feel it or not. That's something I've been working on, especially. Mm, yeah, you know, for some reason, uh, the pursuit of happiness in and of itself is just something that just has never struck me because happiness in and of itself to seek it in my when my little worldview is really uh, egocentric and self-centered mm-hmm. type of happiness where if I seek Christian joy that comes from serving Christ, serving others and uh, which is in turn the way to have the ultimate happiness too as you rest in Jesus. So yeah. that's pretty cool. Yeah. Great things. And, and lots of men came forward from the central Texas area that had stated, oh my gosh, they love the station so much. And so, mm-hmm. so many people that are hearing it for the first time are new Red Sea, you know, addicts. Right. Well, <laughs> and, and the interview we're having up the coming up in this, this next part of the hour is going to be Dr. Michael Foley, who is a professor at Baylor. At, yeah, at Baylor. We didn't even know that when we booked him. There are quite um, a few great Catholic professors absolutely. at Baylor who are very, very faithful men and, and women, I believe. there's. I'm not sure how many they have there, but um, a good number of, of men and women that are great faculty members at, at Baylor who are also Catholic. So yeah, we'll have to tap into their knowledge. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm really looking forward to that. As well, we fact, are in the second half. Yes, that for sure. And, um, you know, he's an expert in patristics, the fathers of the church. Yeah. Very cool. Well, um, I want to go ahead and talk just a second about some of the things that are going on around here. Something that's kind of dear to my heart is supporting the Guatemala medical mission trip. It is headed up by Dr. Stephen Braden and Michelle Braden. And it runs out of St. Thomas Aquinas. There's uh, quite a few, uh, like Kathy Polzer is the parishioner there that is, I believe, the chair. But they go each year to uh, Guatemala. Now, this mission trip was started many, many years ago by my beloved father, Dean Wilhelm. He had a friend in the area at the time. Um, So they're really mostly in need of donations to purchase things as customs has gotten more difficult. But you can make a donation to your your parish office, and they'll get get it to them, especially through Thomas Aquinas or through the office over there at St. Joseph's. And they, they have participants from the Waco and Central Texas area that go with them That's each year great. as well. So I know they have some uh, a dentist, uh, Dr. Jeanette Cunningham, has gone in the past. I'm not sure if she's able to go uh, this year or not, but uh, so many people from all around this area right. go on this mission, and they have a waiting list. Absolutely. Now. A dear friend of mine and dentist, Dr. Michael Kramer, will be joining with his daughter this year. They're going I'm as a wonderful. little team. Yeah, it's kind of neat. Incredible people. So, Dennis, did you get to go by and see the relics of St. Anthony? We did. We <gasps> went uh, to see St. Anthony's relics at St. Anthony of Padua That's Church so cool. in Bryan. The next night, it was at St. Francis on the Brazos in Waco. And so they had a, that's a large parish there. And uh, just just very moving to see a, a, a relic, a piece of one of his ribs and some skin from St. Anthony's. Wow. And um, just to hear more about uh, our beloved saint. And so many people rely on him for lost items. But, uh, you know, to bring the whole family there and to be able to venerate someone that is so special. And we've grown up in his parish here in, uh, in Bryan. It's, it was a very special time. That's really cool. I'm, I was unfortunately not able to do that. It's the day of my uh, 
my beautiful stepmother's birthday, so we went out for a visit to her right yeah. after school that day. But you she know, Dennis, very nice. we don't have much time left to talk about what's coming up is Lent. Mm. Ah, it actually is one of my favorite times. You know, me too. I've got friends that's not so much. Yeah. But do you have something that's a standard, or do you pray and we, come up with something we different We say the every stations, year? we have a short Stations of the Cross that we have in our Catholic Family Bible, and it, they're just short reflections that we do every night in Lent as a family. We also are uh, going to the Stations of the Cross as a family each Friday night at St. Anthony's here, our par- home parish. Mm-hmm. Um, something else that we're going to be doing is working on the 33-day consecration, which started yesterday. And so the preparations go into Lent up until March 25th. So we'll be doing that this year as well. That's and we, really we do invite anybody in the Central Texas and even here in our listening area in call it Ryan College Station, to go to our website, redsearadio.org forward slash consecration. And you can listen to the reflections that are going on in Waco now at any time um, and follow them along. They're both the long form, which is about a 48-minute show that plays at 6 a.m. and at 9 p.m. twice a day for the next 32 days now. Or there's a shorter form, which is the written, uh, the red version from the book, 33 Days to Morning Glory. And so it's about a five-minute segment you can also listen to at any time. So if you missed one, you can catch up. And uh, it's a powerful, powerful um, consecration because it's, <laughs> I, I credit our consecration of the station here to enabling us to hire Thaddeus and as well as uh, build toward buying the station in Waco. So yes. we dedicate that station to Jesus now through it's Mary. It's a beautiful devotion. Um, I, I and a friend, a friend and I, I should say, um, read it every year during Advent. And every year, Dennis, you know, we, we glean something new, something fresh from reading the text about the way those different saints live during their time periods. And it just, it continues to to bless everybody, I think, that reads it. So don't do it, do it just once, folks. I would highly recommend getting the book, 33 Days to Morning Glory, um, Father Gately, just going to be a holy man in his own right. You know, he is a holy man. Um, love to see him come to a conference closer. I know he was in Houston not too long ago, but love mm-hmm. to see him come a little closer. Right. And it, it it's a, a very simple book to read. And yes. so we were able to read Beautiful. it with the family last mm-hmm. night. And so... We uh, follow that with the litany to Loretto, litany, litany of Loretto, and um, that's kind of our prayer, daily prayer throughout this consecration period and going into Lent. How yeah. about you? How about well, your I was going to say, you know, the Maccas, that's pretty cool. They're just, that's really holy stuff. The Marvins are a little more <laughs> just everyday-ish, I think. Um, one of the things we like to do, too, is be very much more thoughtful about electronics, getting off electronics. Mm. You know, watching your FaceTime, Good idea. backing off, keeping, you know, it's really on my heart always that uh, Sundays be really a day of family, which means uh, we, we do like one show in the evening together as a family, but for the rest of the day, it's like no, yeah. no screen time, just be a family, um, have the family dinner, play games together as a family. We'll be doing that. Um, but another thing that Paul and I really enjoy doing is um, we... Several years ago, I started what I called kind of a dietary reboot. Well, as a matter of fact, they've come out with a a, a diet for that called the Whole30, hmm. which 
it basically has all processed foods and very common irritants to people, which, so it's really is a sacrifice. It's a form of fasting, but it goes on for 30 days. And, <laughs> wow. and Paul, That's Paul, tough. well, Paul said, Pam, let's get started on this before Lent because I want to be able to have the fish, the fish fry, you know, fried yeah, fish, yeah, yeah. you know? So we started a little <laughs> bit early and we're about 18 days into it. And Dennis, Paul's actually lost about 12 or 13 pounds. Woo-hoo. Yeah. That's very nice. Yep. So be prayerful, folks. Go to Jesus in the in the Adoration Chapel. Ask him how you can reboot this Lent, because that's what the beautiful season of Lent is for. Reboot and get rid of the old and bring in some fresh new stuff. Indeed. Yeah. I'm really excited that we're going to get to be talking to, listening to this. Uh, Dr. Michael Dr. Foley. Dr. Michael Foley on Drinking with the Saints. Um, stay tuned. Again, this is a recorded call, so no, um, no call-ins at the time. But until then, we'll see you next time on the radio. All right. Well, welcome back. Again, you are listening to Red Sea Roundup. I'm your host today, Pam Marvin. Thanks for staying with us. Right now, we're going to go into a wonderful conversation with Dr. Michael Foley. Now, Dr. Michael Foley is an associate professor of patristics in the Honors College at Baylor University, and he is the author, most recently, of Drinking with the Saints. Good morning, Dr. Foley. Good morning, Pam. Thank you for joining us today. And as a reminder to our listeners, this is a pre-recorded show, so we won't be taking calls this morning. My apologies. But I am so happy to have you join us today. Um, The more I researched for this interview, the more I was like, wow, so cool that you're right here in Waco. We want to say a great shout out to all our Waco listeners. So hello, Waco area, the Brazos Valley. We've got the Brazos Valley covered, I think. Excellent. Yeah. So um, first, I want to ask you um, about your job. I mean, being an associate professor of patristics in the Honors College at Baylor. So kind of give me a background of how you got into this. Like, give me a little bit of your history of what got you to that point and so forth. Well, I am a cradle Catholic. I have always uh, been one. And... I went through the Catholic school pipeline in my native California, and I always kept having questions about my faith that, in a sense, weren't getting answered by whatever school I was in. So I just kept pushing, and eventually I found myself in graduate school studying theology. And I had a special fondness for St. Augustine, who is obviously a great church father, and I got my degree on St. Augustine, and that's what makes me a a scholar of patristics, Mm. which is nothing but the study of the church fathers. Right. So um, can you tell me in particular why you chose Augustine? It was his passion. Mm. I'd never read an author who wrote so intensely about himself and about God as one of my professors put it, uh, Augustine wrote with his blood. Oh, <laughs> wow. Well, I want to ask you more about him, too, because I know our listeners are fascinated as well as I am. Um, but tell me some of your um, 
maybe favorite quotes. I, I have a friend of a friend of mine, Megan Silas, who sometimes we play that that game about we we quote a saint and they have, the other person's got to guess who it is. So tell me some of your oh. favorite favorite quotes of Augustine. Well, nothing exceptional. Uh, my favorite quotes are probably everyone's favorite quotes. Our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. Mm-hmm. Late have I loved thee, O beauty ever ancient, ever new. Uh, he's he's eminently quotable. That is so true. We can always uh, be refreshed by listening to those, though. You you know you know what I mean. It's like oh, oh it's so refreshing just to hear that. Wow. So so say what is one of the course titles you teach up there? Well, I'm in the Great Texts program, which is kind of a a Great Books curriculum. Mm. So we teach usually sort of time periods. So mostly I will teach one course called Ancient Intellectual Tradition, and then another course will be Medieval Intellectual Tradition. And in those courses, we always aim for a balance of philosophy and theology on the one hand and literature on the other, which is a lot of fun because you can see how art and ideas sort of cross-pollinate all the time. That sounds really very fascinating. (laughs) It's a lot of fun to teach. And yeah. When you go to grad school, you were basically trained to know more and more about less and less. So this kind of course pushes all of us, the faculty in the Great Text Program, it pushes all of us outside of our comfort zones because we're trained to be specialists. But to oh. do this kind of course, you've got to be a generalist. What's some of your favorite works that you're, you're kind of studying and teaching on right now? Right now, my students and I are reading Plato's Republic, Mm. which is probably my favorite platonic dialogue, and it is really thought-provoking and a lot of fun. Now, is it readable for, say, just um, an average reader like myself? I I love to read. I I gave up uh, fiction many years ago because I want to read only for knowledge. Uh, Would I be able to read something like that? It sounds a little intimidating. Well, I think I would recommend starting with a shorter platonic dialogue first, just to kind of get your sea legs. Okay. The Republic is his longest work, and it can be frustrating. Mm. I think it's rewarding, but there will be times when you just want to throw the book against the wall. (laughs) Wow. Okay. Um, So the platonic, what was the first one you said, just some of the shorter works? Well, a shorter platonic dialogue, like there's one called the Ion, I-O-N, mm, okay. and it's short and sweet. Well, I'm going to have to do that. And now let me talk. I've always, I haven't actually, I do have a confession. I haven't read Uh-oh. Confessions, <laughs> ah. <laughs> which I'm quite sad that I haven't. I mean, that's that's pretty big um, and to admit that for me, <laughs> that I haven't <laughs> actually read that because I love him, and I'm surprised that I haven't read it. But is there another place that you think... Just a lay person who just wants to be well formed in her faith and and um, love the works of the saints. I've I've, I've read quite a few, uh, but I haven't read him. Would you say go straight for confessions or start with something else? I would say go straight for the confessions. Mm, okay. Before the 16th century, it was the second most read book in Christendom. Wow. It was second only to the Bible. So it's it's a classic. It has formed generations of saints. It is uh, worth reading. Now, I know you've written um, the book that we'll be take, talking about more here in a minute, Drinking with the Saints, but have you, I know you've done um, both 
um, scholarly works, but have you done other uh, books for laymen like myself? Oh, absolutely. Before Drinking with the Saints, I wrote a book called Why Do Catholics Eat Fish on Friday? Uh, the Catholic Origin, okay. just about everything. And there, the goal of that book was to uncover things that you think of as secular or everyday, but which in fact have a Catholic derivation. Mm. Things like um, table manners or secular holidays actually having Catholic religious roots. Is that right? Then would you say the name of that book one more time for our, read- our listeners? Sure. Why Do Catholics Eat Fish on Friday? The Catholic Origin to Just About Everything. <laughs> that sounds great. Well, um, definitely want to hear about that some more sometime, too. Maybe there'll be another interview with you. <laughs> so tell us more about um, this book, the origins of the book. What were the inspirations? Why did you want to write it? Um, wait a second. Before, before that, let me let me back up a little bit. I'm getting ahead of sure. myself. Um, I As I mentioned to you when we were off air, I read your article in Crisis on drinking and Catholicism. I'm, I'm sorry I'm not quoting the exact title of it right now. But I really want to start there um, with talking about the thought on alcohol and Catholics, you know, I am a convert myself, coming from a, Prada, a Protestant family who still have very, you know, strict rules themselves about not drinking and so forth. And it's always kind of mystify me where it all works in. I thought your, your article just really articulated that well. So since both of us actually do live in college towns where uh, over-drinking is um, prevalent, let's say, um, would you give us kind of um, just a breakdown and some some good formation on the proper use of alcohol for um, a Catholic striving to be holy today? Sure, I'd be happy to. And to start off with, I think the article you're talking about is how to drink like a saint. There you go. You <laughs> Thank find you. Online. It was published through Crisis Magazine, and so if you just Google. Foley, How to Drink Like a Saint, something should pop up. Right. As a matter of fact, I have to sidebar to say I posted on BCS Catholics this morning on Facebook. So if you um, are in the BCS Catholics um, group on Facebook, his article is already posted there, folks. So go ahead. Great. Well, it's, it's an important topic, and I didn't really think about it until after I'd published the book. Mm. I had come at the book with the question of, what to drink. But after researching the book, I realized that I had learned lessons in how to drink, that there really is a Catholic art of drinking. And it involves drinking like a saint, drinking not in a godless or abusive manner, but drinking with a sense of gratitude, with a sense of moderation, uh, with a sense of merriment, uh, with a sense of ritual, that there are many things that go into the mix of not just responsible drinking, but in a sense, sacramental drinking. What, what I mean by that is not that drinking is a sacrament uh, outside of the Eucharist, but that it is a form of acknowledging the, the goodness and kindness of God in your life. Mm. That's, that's wonderful. So um, you went into a little more detail, too, about that tipping point and about the way um, 
the what was it the not drinking not alone but not to forget but to remember i love that part can you talk can you expand on that a little bit that's right that one of the and this was not my idea i believe chesterton and belloc had also written about this but one of the differences between healthy drinking and unhealthy drinking is that the healthy drinker drinks to remember the unhealthy drinker drinks to forget Mm. So think of, for example, the difference between going to a really good wedding and some lonely guy at a bar. At a really good wedding, when you drink, you several generations gather to celebrate the love of this man and this woman. And when they raise that glass in their honor, they're not only thinking of this love, but there's something about a wedding, especially if you are married, that reminds you of your own wedding reminds you of your parents' love. It reminds you of a a chain of love that binds us all together. And so when you drink at a really good wedding, you are drinking to remember a long and vast chain of love. On the opposite side of that, you have the guy who's drinking to forget. And clearly, that is not healthy drinking. He's, you know, he's downing shot after shot to sort of forget his bad week or his bad life or his dead-end job or, or whatever it is. But that is, that is not healthy drinking. Yeah, I like I want to actually kind of chime in here a little sec, a sidebar a second. In a way, I, I, I attended a really great conference, the Living Well Aware Conference by Dr. Shupak, who really um, medically kind of defined what you know, over this point was an unhealthy amount and um, mm-hmm. like more than a glass, a glass a day, which I thought was a lot, <laughs> but just one for women and two for, for, for men a day was considered to be excessive um, in any case. And I thought that was a, a great reference for oh. a medical guideline. Um, and they were very big proponents of cutting out excessive drinking and, and kind of saying this is what the baseline should be anything more than this is excessive. So I thought that was, that was interesting to note. That's interesting because I've heard that one a day for women and two a day for men is normal. No, they said that's the baseline. Anything more than that, that. anything over that was, is considered to be excessive. Interesting. So to sit down and have a bottle of wine a night is a little excessive. Oh, sure. That's right. <laughs> just, that would be just about saying. four glasses. So yeah. That would be pushing it. Right. So, you know, and, you know, this begs another question since we, um, again, the college theme here um, in training our young people. I, my children are 25, 23, almost 21, and then I have two little ones at home. But, you know, really educating them on the proper use and, um, of alcohol and when it's appropriate and inappropriate. I think it's really, it's good just to, to revisit that in, in a general way. Um, Michael, if you could go ahead and kind of address that, like if you could script it perfectly on how to educate our young people on the proper use of alcohol um, in our Catholic homes, um, how would you, how would you do that? Well, I guess the first thing is to drink with your children which sounds awful in our sort of neo-puritanical culture, but I really do think it is the healthiest model. Mm-hmm. It's the Mediterranean model. It's what the Italians and the French and the Spanish do. 
they have table wine uh, every day at dinner and not just the adults, but the children. I'm not saying that you have to do that, but what you do need to do is destigmatize alcohol. Do not Agreed. treat it like it is some forbidden fruit because then when they become teenagers, it will become a symbol of rebellion. The world's, uh, the group with the world's lowest rate of alcoholism is Orthodox Jews. Mm. And they speculate that the reason for that is because wine is always at their table. It, it never occurs to an Orthodox Jew to use alcohol abusively because it is simply a natural part of the fabric of his life. And something is true in Italy as well. In the United States, the alcoholism rate is 5.5%. In Italy, the alcoholism rate is 0.5%. And there is no legal drinking age in Italy, and yet it has this phenomenally low alcoholism rate. They don't, they don't stigmatize alcohol. And when you go to Italy and you go along the streets of Rome or wherever, when you see public drunkenness, I guarantee you nine times out of ten, it's an American tourist. Wow. The Italians don't get publicly drunk. They don't have the same schizophrenic puritanical attitude towards alcohol that we do. Well, that kind of begs the question. I know I have some dear friends that are Europeans, and I'm always so amazed at how how they can consume alcohol and just never apparently even seem to get drunk, you know, even Mm -hmm. drinking more than, say, like, if I had that much to drink, I'd be under the table. But they somehow, no. I mean, I wonder if there is something, you know, just because that's the way they were raised, um, there is something just in the chemical makeup of the different areas of the continents? I don't know. What, what would you speculate? Genetics can play a role. Uh, the world's, the, the group with the highest rate of alcoholism in the world is Native Americans. And they speculate that there's some genetic component. Uh, some think that it's because Native Americans lack an enzyme in the stomach that breaks alcohol down quickly. And because they lack this enzyme, the alcohol passes into the bloodstream much more quickly and has much more dramatic an effect. So yes, genetics can play a role, but in the case of your European friends, I would say no, that it was cultural, that they were, they were brought up by their parents to know how to drink. So they can drink, the French drink more than two glasses a day, but they drink moderately, they pair it with food, they pace themselves, they, they never, the French aren't walking around in a dim haze. Or if they are, it's not because of alcohol. Right. Wow. So advice to young people or parents of young people, especially in the Catholic home, I know I've allowed my um, older, say the last couple of years in the home, definitely to have a glass of wine or a beer with a family dinner. And it's allowed um, in our company. So that's exactly. that's what we've done. Oh, wait, can I that can is, I jump in here, please? Um, I just was going to suggest, Michael. Do you think it's partly um, suggesting to our college age Catholic folks that when they get to college, they need to find other peers who will drink with them in this way? that will will create yes. that culture of drinking at college 
in this way. They, they're not going to be successful if they think they can go into a house party and drink in this way. They're going to be, they're going to be influenced by the world. They're going to be influenced. The, the peer pressure is going to be too strong. They need oh, to create their true. own little world of good peer pressure um, to drink in this way. And, and they, they're not going to be, they're also not going to probably be successful if they just try to surround themselves with, with teetotalers. Right. You know, they've got to find this so often it's, it's Catholicism being this third way between these two ridiculous extremes that, you know, the modern world has created. Um, oh, it's what so do you true. think about that? No, I think you're right that the rules for healthy drinking and healthy drinking with friends are no different than the rules for good friendship in general. Yeah. You've got to pick the right friends. You've got to be careful who you hang out with. And that's very much true. And especially in a place like college where for the first time you're not under the parental eye and it seems liberating and you want to sort of push the boundaries, but you have to be sensible. Right. I, I have to kind of, to say um, things worked out really well. One of my daughters actually came home after a freshman year of college and thanked her father and I saying, Mom, Dad, thank you so much for just allowing me to have this, the alcohol those years in the house uh, because she was exposed to a lot of her you know, stu- fellow students that had never had a drop of alcohol that do, mm. like you say, go kind of crazy, which is unfortunately one of the symptoms uh, of our culture today. And she, she was just kind of really horrified that it was like that way. Cause she had no desire to do that because it, again, the stigma, the, uh, not the stigma, taboo. the taboo part of it, the, mm-hmm. the mystery of it was already revealed to her. So there wasn't, you know, n- no mystery about it. It was, it's just a, a practical part of a, a nice family dinner. And I'm happy to say that she and, and, and the group of, kids that she runs with here um here at St. Mary's they're an older group of kids that are post mostly post college are are that way where they've enjoyed a very uh moderate style of um fine beers and hey how about the nice uh what is it they call them I the words are really slipping me not the top shelf beers what is it craft, craft beers. beers that's craft yes beers, the yeah, craft sure. beers which I do have to sidebar did you know we now have um, that Ale Mary. Right. <laughs> have you heard about uh, Father, this? Father no, Ryan Higdon, who's the associate oh. pastor here at St. Mary's, he arranged with is New Republic Brewery. Yes, that's right. Here in College Station to um, produce this a small batch ale um, called Ale Mary. And I think it's, well, I'm it's available here in town. It. I need to get some of that. That yeah. sounds hilarious. Yeah, we need to have you have you here, and uh, we'll go sample it. <laughs> that sounds great. I actually, I actually uh, emailed Father Ryan yesterday and said, "You need to meet this guy, Father Ryan. He's just right up your alley. He actually has a radio show as well um, called Everyday Catholic. So I wouldn't be surprised if you get a call from Father Ryan one day to to be a guest on his show as well, because you know that's." been one of his things. As a matter of fact, New Republic actually donates back some of the proceeds to the St. Mary's Student Center here of the sale of the Ale Mary, which I don't think you can buy at stores. I think you have to go to New Republic to buy I it. Believe, I believe yeah. that's true. But we, okay. we only have about 10 minutes left, um, so we should let Pam ask you about 
about the book before we before we have to go. Yes, of Absolutely. course. The inspiration behind the book. What what would make you think, oh, I'm going to write a book about Drinking with the Saints? Well, to explain, Drinking with the Saints is a book that pairs beer, wine, and cocktail suggestions with the feast days of the church year. So instead of having special foods for such and such a feast day, I recommend certain drinks. And the reason for this is quite simple. I scoured the market, found dozens of Catholic cookbooks, which are all great, but I could not find a single Catholic bartender's guide. And so this was something that sorely needed redressing. <laughs> well, do you tell me about your favorites from the book. Do you have some favorite drinks? Uh, the, one of the neat things about researching this book, in addition to learning a lot about the saints, was that I definitely expanded my horizons regarding the different kinds of alcohol, the different kinds of cocktails. We sampled, my wife and I and friends, because it was a group effort, all sorts of different uh, mixed drinks. And we had, at the end, over 350 cocktail recipes in the book. Most of them were tried and true classic drinks, some of which going back to pre-prohibition. But there are 28 original cocktails that we made just for the book. Is that right? Hmm. And some of those are happen to be my favorite because we had a lot of fun making them and perfecting them. So it was good. Okay, so the other question I think is really fascinating as well. is like, how did you decide which drink went with which saint? Ah, uh, well, it depended. Uh, oftentimes, I would try to find some, maybe the, some uh, geographical connection. The saint was from a certain place. Maybe the certain place is famous for a certain drink. Oftentimes, it was maybe a symbol in Christian art that they are associated with. If it's a pomegranate, we could have a drink with grenadine. Uh, if it's juniper, we can have a drink with gin. Uh, any kind of co uh, connection. Well, I have to, to say that uh, one of my favorite feast days just recently happened was Our Lady of Lourdes. And so I have it open to that page in your book. And so I want to, to read to our listeners about the white rose. And maybe you can tell us a little more about that. But I'm going to read the ingredients. And if you want to expand on on how that came to be. I'd love that. But the white sure. rose cocktail in, in honor of Our Lady of Lourdes is one ounce of port, three quarter ounces of gin, and three quarter ounces of a cherry liqueur, which that sounds really delicious to me, actually. Um, says pour all ingredients in the shaker, filled with ice, and shake 40 times. I like the 40 times re reference. Was that by no accident, or is there some more meaning behind that? That was deliberate. We wanted a, a good biblical number so you could be doing penance as you prepared for your drink. <laughs> I love it. So can you tell me how you found this particular recipe, or was it some, one that you came up with, or how was it inspired? There was actually a couple different cocktails that have the name White Rose, and so I included both of those for Our Lady of Lords, and there the association was the title. Mm. Mary at... Uh, Lords was associated not only with her purity, you know, immac the, the announcing of the Immaculate Conception. So there's the white, but she was also associated with roses. Um, I think they were uh, on her feet during the apparition at Lords. So it was that connection that tied her to the white rose cocktail. So the white rose cocktail 
you know, is obviously pre-existed, and then you tied it to Our Lady. Is that is that correct? That's correct. Okay, so white rose number two, folks, is one and a half ounces of gin, half ounce of maraschino liqueur, uh, half ounce of orange juice, quarter ounce of lemon or lime juice, and one egg white. Whoa. How does that taste? Really good. <laughs> a lot of the older recipes pre-prohibition had egg white, and it added a certain frothiness to the drink. Mm. And when I first saw these recipes, I thought, this is very strange, but it actually is really good. Well, it sounds like it. So what is your favorite of all of them in the book? Do you have a favorite? Oh, yes. Well, I think going back to the cocktails that we had made for the book, we made a cocktail for St. Augustine that I'm particularly fond of. (laughs) We actually made two cocktails for St. Augustine. He was a very famous sinner turned saint. So we made one for his sinful past and one for his conversion. And the one for his conversion, I think, is my favorite. It, it features fig vodka and a simple syrup made from honey and a little bit of lemon juice. Wow. I know that... Um, sorry. I know that there's other types of uh, ones in here, too, that for, um, was it the one about um, illness? Like when there was a illness in cer- certain of the abbeys a long time ago, there was a certain cocktail they would drink to, for, to help with their illnesses. Am I, am I remembering correctly? Oh, I think you're thinking of Chartreuse. Ah, yes. Which yes. is the world's best liqueur. And it is, a ma- it is uh, still made by the Carthusian monks in only one location, their, their charter house high in the French Alps, it, is such, it has such a tightly guarded recipe that only two monks at any given time know the recipe. But it's made from over 120 hand-picked herbs. Mm. The monks themselves pick the herbs. And they, they sell it commercially, but within the community, if any of them get sick, they just simply take a tablespoon of chartreuse and it apparently clears up their illnesses perfectly. So it has a, a medicinal healing effect for any ailment, or is it, you know, like a respiratory or GI or things like that, or it's just a cure-all? I think it was when they, ha- they felt a cold coming on. They're in a very drafty place, very drafty building in a very cold place. So this would help sort of nip a cold in the bud. Okay. And that, incidentally, is one of the reasons why the church historically has been associated with the development of alcohol is that a lot of these things were indeed medicinal. Mm. Herbal liqueurs can be good for you. Alcohol, again, in moderation, can be helpful for you. Think of the contents of cough medicine, for example. Yes, that's right. Even today, we still have alcohol in our medicine for minor things like the cold. That's very true. Um, Michael, could you talk about the connection between the craft of make many of the cocktails in the book are what what one might look at and say boy this is an elaborate procedure to create this this mixed drink talk about the connection between that and the uh, ideas of of merriment and conviviality and um, friendship that you think are foundational to a Catholic way of drinking? Is there, is there a connection between um, 
it not just being pop open a, a can of beer and, you know, start going? Absolutely. I, most of the recipes in the book were chosen because they're not overly complicated. We have entered into actually a sort of golden age of cocktails now. Cocktails have waxed and waned in popularity over the last 80 years. Mm -hmm. And we're in an age right now where they are taking off in swank new bars mm -hmm. and places like that. But they're also getting kind of complicated. Mm -hmm. Some of these new recipes, as they keep pushing the envelope, become more and more sort of esoteric. Mm -hmm. So I try to avoid that extreme. I wanted something that you could make in your home bar without having to hunt down a rare recipe. But as to your broader point, yes, there's definitely a connection between slowing down, making a cocktail with a certain kind of mindfulness, and then sharing it with, with friends. When you aren't paying attention to the alcohol, you're just sort of drinking a drink to get drunk, there's an absent-mindedness there that is not conducive to not only healthy drinking, but to fellowship. One of the big reasons to have drinking in moderation is that it encourages friendship. Mm. You know, friends get together, they have just one or two beers to relax, but then so that they can enjoy themselves. Okay, great. Maybe they want to enjoy themselves by uh, mixing cocktails. Some of the recipes might seem kind of elaborate. They might not have a home bar. If they want to create their own cocktails, um, following along with your book, what should they do to, to set up a home bar? What goes into it? Well, you could start with our website, drinkingwiththesaints.com. We have a couple of gift items like mixing glasses and aprons. We're also going to be putting up martini glasses, drinking with the saints martini glasses in a couple of, uh, well, soon. I don't know. I, I won't tell you exactly when, but soon. It's really not that hard to set up a home bar. Really all you need is a shaker, some kind of measuring glass or mixing glass, and then eventually specialized bar glasses. Mm. You do want to have cocktails in cocktail glasses. You also want to have what they're, they're called tumblers or old-fashioned glasses or rocks glasses. You'll need a couple of specialized glasses, but it's really not that hard to assemble, and it's really not that expensive. Yeah, I have to say, I don't even, I have, I have like highballs and what I call martini glasses, but um, can you describe what you're calling a cocktail glass? Well, that's the technical name for a martini glass. Oh, uh, okay. They also go by the name of martini, but they are, it is important to get those glasses for certain drinks, ones that have been strained of ice, because the shape is designed to enhance the flavor. They're designed, a martini glass is designed so that the heat of your hand stays away from the drink. And so you want mm. your cocktail to be cold. And the martini glass helps keep that going. Because typically there's not going to be ice in it that, that's shaped. Is that correct? Because it's strained? Is that what you're saying? That's exactly it. Wow. Whereas with a, a low ball or a high ball glass, they will uh, those those drinks will typically have ice in them, so it doesn't matter that your hand is on them. Wonderful. Now, well, Michael, I am a fan, 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 big fan of the martini, and I haven't mm. come across yet. Is there a saint that, whose feast day I should be looking out for for when I can have a <laughs> martini with that saint? I, I, too, am a big martini man, and the martini is featured several times in the book. 
with several variations. So the big one is St. Martin of Tours. Oh, love St. Martin of Tours. Simply because of the name. Mm-hmm. The name Martini is based on a bartender named Martinez who invented the drink either in San Francisco or in, what was the other town? There are two towns in Northern California that, that vie for the claim that right. they invented the martini. Right. But it's generally agreed that it was a guy named Martinez who made the martini. Well, the word, the name Martinez in Spanish would not have existed were it not for the popularity of St. Martin of Tours. So I pair Martin of Tours with that. And usually the classic martini has gin. And there's some purists who despise vodka martinis. Some, I'm some one of do, them. some don't. I don't personally have that strong an opinion. Gin is preferable, but vodka's okay. But for St. Martin of Tours, I have a martini with Grey Goose vodka mm. because there is a legend about St. Martin and the geese that ties in very nicely with that drink. Okay. Well, one of um, our family favorites when my adult children come home is to have a Bloody Mary. And so I had to look that one up. And another thing you have in the book, which I find delightful, is the little last call section. And this particular one on the Bloody Mary, I'm going to read it real quick. It says, mix yourself and your friends a Bloody Mary, raise it high and exclaim, by Our Lady Mary, through her immaculate heart, may we have peace among nations, freedom for the church, the conversion of sinners, the love of purity, and the practice of virtue. I, I, that's just beautiful. Where is that from? That is from Pope Pius Twelfth. One of the things that's I gorgeous. do is often take pious passages and convert them into a toast mm. so that the, the event takes on a, a, a more authentically merry and, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Well, I guess pious note. That's wonderful. Can you talk just a bit about why toasting is important, that that's something worth bringing back to gatherings of friends and family? It is very important. And, you know, a few minutes ago, we were talking about the rise of craft beers and how the good news is, especially with the millennials, they are taking the taste of their drinks a lot more seriously. They talk about things like flavor profile, which I never talked about when I was in college. And they take the, the taste of microbrews very, very seriously. Mm-hmm. I think that's a very healthy development. I think that that attentiveness is good for moderation. You're slowing down. You're savoring what you're drinking. But the one thing I have noticed with the millennials, if I could offer one growth opportunity for this generation, it is they're losing the toast. And the toast is an important ritual because, well, for one thing, Ritual in general is not the enemy of joy. Uh, We Catholics should know this instinctively, that ritual energizes our joy. It channels it. It sort of establishes a framework in which joy can flourish. And that's true of life in general with our various social rituals, religious rituals, but it's also true with our drinking rituals, that there needs to be a certain kind of protocol. And part of that is the toast. The toast turns an amorphous gathering into an event. Mm. We are here for a reason, and we raise our glass for this occasion. And it needn't be a grand occasion. It needn't be an elaborate toast. 
It could just simply be something as simple as to our friendship. And there you have changed the nature of the event. Well, I'm going to dedicate this show to my friends who we do that specifically. I've got a group of, uh, there's about four couples that get together on occasion, and we do. We toast to the joy of our friendship and thanksgiving to God because God loves us through our friends, and we're very thankful for that. And uh, we're thankful for this interview today. I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your day to do this. And I want to, to again, tell everybody the information where they can, uh, about your website, they can get uh, the book and also any of the accoutrements to um, complete their home bar. So if you wouldn't mind, go ahead and and give them that information. It is drinkingwiththesaints.com. Excellent. Well, I hope you have a beautiful and blessed day. You've really blessed us all. And I think that formation and education toward proper use and handling of alcoholic beverages and all that it accompanies is a wonderful thing. And I just thank heavens for um, your inspiration for this book. And, and Godspeed, my friend. Thank you so much, Sam. Had a great time. Thank you.